The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, church. Today we'll be reading from Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. You can find it on page 875 of your chair Bible. That's Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. If you're here today and you do not have a Bible and you would like to have one, please take one from under the chair in front of you as our gift to you. Again, we're reading Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. The word of the Lord. Great to be with you all. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for being here. Let's pray as we open up this passage. Need some help. I need some help. Maybe as you heard it, you thought you need some help too. (laughs) So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are a communicating God. You've communicated yourself in this book. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand, Lord, but your, your meaning is there if we'll, if we'll work at it, think about it, pray on it. We thank you for your word. Uh, most of all, we thank you for your son. That's who you've spoken through, who he is and what he's done. And you still speak through your spirit, even right now, from your word about your son. And so we just invite you to come and speak to us as we look at your word. Lord, please help me to teach this faithfully, clearly, Uh, But more than that, we just pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes, teach us about our hearts, about Jesus, and uh, amaze us at his beauty and what it would mean to belong to him. We pray this in his name for his glory. Amen. I think it's true that sometimes folks who go to Alcoholics Anonymous will sometimes start the meeting saying something like this, hi, my name's Matt, and I'm an alcoholic. Isn't that true, right? Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm an alcoholic. Now, why do you think that is? What's the value of that? Well, I think you're just getting it out on the table, right? Your, your problem. You're admitting that it's there, and you're admitting that you need help. Um, two very big things to do, right? Admitting that you have a problem and that you need help. Well, by God's grace, I'm not an alcoholic, praise God. So that's not what I'm talking about today. But I'm going to piggyback on that and say this. My name is Matt, hello, my name is Matt, and I'm a recovering idolater. I'm not joking around. My name is Matt, and I'm a recovering idolater. So what I'm telling you is that in my life, I've had a problem with worshiping fake gods. Again, I'm not messing around, I'm I'm telling you the, the truth. I've had a problem worshiping fake gods. Now, I want you to know, it's not like I have a secret room in the back with statues and candles and I'm killing goats in the middle of the night or something like that. That's not what I mean. 
But you need to know you don't have to have a statue to have an idol. You don't need a statue to have an idol. Idolatry goes far deeper than that. That's why it's so easy to be blind to it. But the Bible tells us, and I think experience shows it, that the core problem with humanity is our idolatry. It's a problem that everyone shares. Every evil and brokenness kind of grows out of it. And so I think it's fair to say every person in here is either deep into it or recovering from it. Every person in here. And then maybe you're like, hold up, you're telling me I'm an, I'm an idolater? Well, yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just like me, let me explain a little bit what I mean. You're a human being, right? And you're, you have a heart. It's the sense of your core self, and your heart has needs, deep, deep, painful needs. I'll unpack some of them. You have this need for a sense of identity and significance, that who you are matters, that you're valuable, you need this. You have a deep need uh, uh, for, for meaning and purpose. You long to know that you live for something important and valuable. You have a deep need in a, uh, for a sense of what's right and what's true. You need to know that somehow you know how to live the good life or the right life and you're doing it sort of. You need that. You need a sense of security and hope. You long to know that there's a good future coming. And finally, you need a sense of joy and satisfaction. You're dying to be happy. These are needs our hearts bring, and we're always looking for a source to meet that need. We're like people who are desperately thirsty, finally making it to the water fountain, and we bring these needs to these sources. What is going to meet this need for identity, significance, meaning, purpose? What's right? What gives security? What gives joy? What's going to meet it? And I want you to know that the intersection of finding this source and bringing your need, that's your functional worship. It's your functional worship. You're serving this thing. You're looking to it. You're hoping in it. You're going to it. So I want to I be, ask you to be brave and, and ask yourself what's your go-to. Where is it where you thought, oh, if I just had that, I'd finally, ah, I'd finally be something. I'd finally have it. I'd finally make it. What is it? Where are you looking to prove that you have significance? Where are you looking to, for security, for peace, for joy? Where are you going? What are you hoping in? What's your mind fixated on? What is your emotional passion leaning into? Something in there, you guys. So, our source is what we serve, okay? Our source to meet those hearts needs is what we serve, which is why, you know, praise God, we're at church worshiping today. Everybody's worshiping today, even if they're not at church. Everyone's worshiping. They're worshiping all the time, trying to find this thing that will click, flip the switch for them. So that's what I mean by idolatry. So that the reality is that only the true and living of God of the Bible who made you and designed you is worthy of you bringing those ultimate needs to him. And only he can, can fill them. He's the one who made you. He's the one who created you for himself. Which means that 
Every time you look to something or someone other than the living and true God of the Bible to meet these ultimate needs, guess what you're doing? You're worshiping an idol. You're being an idolater. Anytime you look to something other than the real and living true God to give you what only the real and living and true God can give you, you're worshiping an idol. Every time you say to that God, get out of the way, I want something else, you're being an idolater. And again, I'm telling you, I'm a recovering idolater. I've done this millions of times, and I'm still drawn to it. Okay, so now you might say, well, what on earth does that have to do with the little passage today? Anybody thinking that? The answer is everything. It has everything to do with this passage. That's what this passage is about. It's a challenging passage, right? You got Jesus confronting these Pharisees pretty hard. Then he drops in this mysterious statement about the law and the kingdom. And then then it just out of the blue comes this statement about marriage and divorce that seems to have nothing to do with anything. And you're thinking, what's going on? on. Well, let's remember where we've been in Luke so we can orient ourselves just a little bit. Long time ago, we were in chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And there in chapter 15, you saw this picture. Jesus drew this picture of the father's heart. He loves to go out and seek and save rebellious, lost idolaters. And he brings them to themselves, and when they come to their senses and they come home, he puts the coat on them, right, and gives them the ring and gives them shoes. He he embraces them as his children. Amazing heart of the Father to seek and to save the lost. Then last week, Habib did a great job unpacking the beginning of chapter 16, where Jesus then says to his disciples, hey, I want you to participate in the Father's heart. Join me in going out to seek and save the lost. And then he says, use your resources here, your treasures here that'll fade. And invest them in eternal treasures, which is making friends for the sake of the gospel so that others can know Jesus. Use your resources here, your money, your time, your talents, to, for, for, for your eternal treasure there. Make friends for the kingdom. Participate in the heart of the Father, right? That's what he said. But I want to remind you now of Luke 16, 13, because Jesus then says that what you do with your resources reveals what you worship. Look at Luke 16, 13. No one can serve two masters. We might easily could put in there, no one can worship two gods. Okay? Either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, and in this case, what? Money. Look at how the Pharisees respond to him. Verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things. And what did they do? They ridiculed him. Very interesting. Making fun of him. Mocking him. Why would you mock Jesus when he says you can't serve God and money? Hmm. Let's remember who the Pharisees are. They're religious people who claim to worship God, right? They're always at synagogue. They have memorized more of the Bible than you and I can imagine. That's, That's true. They claim to love God. So they claim this one kind of worship. Who do they claim to worship? The God of the Bible. Luke lets you in on a secret because Jesus knows it. What do they actually worship? Money. What are they, folks? Idolaters. 
You can be super religious and addicted to idolatry. So Jesus is talking to idolaters about idolatry, isn't he? So what does this passage have to do with idolatry? Everything. Everything. And so I think we see here Jesus' hard love for idolaters. Jesus' hard love for idolaters. You have a concept of hard love? You ever had to have hard love with a, with a friend? Or think about the issue of alcoholism again. What do we have to do sometimes when we think our friend maybe is drinking too much? You don't want to do it, right? It's uncomfortable. What do you need to say? I think you're drinking too much. And then you duck, right? You have to do an intervention. You have to intervene. You have to take the risk and get in there and intervene. And is it easy or is it painful? It's painful. Jesus is going to intervene into idolatry, and it's painful. So I'm just warning you the rest of the sermon. If you have to leave because you're like, this is too painful, I understand. Okay? It's going to be painful. But why do we do things like that when we do it? Why would you intervene? Hopefully, if your motives are pure, why would you do it? Love, right? Hard love. So Jesus is going to show hard love to idolaters, and he's going to intervene, and then he's going to give us the antidote. So he's going to intervene into our idolatry and then give us the antidote for our idolatry, and that will set us free. So you ready? Here we go. Let's let Jesus intervene. And I hope that as you're sitting here, I mean, it would be more fun and easier just to be like, hey, those Pharisees, they, they were idiots, weren't they? Amen. We could give each other high fives. Glad I'm not like them that we could split. But Jesus wants to intervene in your idolatry and in mine because we're still stuck in it sometimes and we need the antidote. So let's let him intervene. Here we go. I'll be gentle because he's intervening in mine too, kicking me around, okay? Here we go. Jesus, first of all, intervenes in the Pharisees' idolatry by revealing how they have to justify themselves. I want to walk through that with you. So what did they do when Jesus said, hey, if you love money, you're an idolater. You can't serve God in money. What did they do? They made fun of him. Why? You've got you to th- ask questions like that. Why are they doing this? What's motivating in them to get together and be like, ha, he's an idiot, isn't he? Uh, why? I'm speaking from experience here, okay? I think everyone has a pain point when it comes to their idolatry. A pain point. Because when you build your life and your future and your hope and your identity on a fake God, there is a way in which that God will not come through for you and cannot come through for you. And you will have a deep insecurity about that. So if you're looking for something that's not God for your identity, you'll have this haunting sense of lack in your identity. If you're hoping in something that's not God for meaning and purpose, you'll have this haunting sense of lack of meaning and purpose, etc., It'll haunt you, this pain point. So for instance, you confront your friend who is an alcoholic. And what might he do the first time? Rage at you. Why? You hit the pain point. You hit the pain point. Or maybe your identity is your kids and parenting. And then somebody questions your parenting And it's like a nuclear bomb lit off. Why? 
or failure in your children is revealed, and you're like, hold up, my children don't fail. Oh, see? Right? Failure in your children is revealed, and there's this despair. Uh, your, your very sense of value is, is lost. Why? Why? And you, maybe you come at it, the person who saw it or who confronted it way too hard. Why? It's a pain point. You're building, you're, you're, you're building identity, security, hope, meaning on a false God. Or maybe if, it's, if, it, if your idol is your career and you're not constantly moving up or maybe you plateau, plateau or maybe you get laid off and you don't have that anymore and, and instead of just sadness, it's despair. Emptiness, meaninglessness. That's your pain point on your idolatry. Or there's this relationship you have with someone and it starts to fade, and then you realize you'll do anything to keep it, anything to keep it, anything to keep it. Pain point. Or maybe there's this selfish independence, and you have to be in charge, and you have to be in control, and you're always looking for something to satisfy you. And so you run from commitments, and you burn every bridge, no matter how much it ruins your life, because you've got to find this next thing that's going to satisfy you. Pain point on idol worship. That's what that is. Idolatry has a pain point. And when the pain point gets pushed, there's a reaction. Pharisees' pain point got pushed. You can't love God and money. And what do they have to do? They have to gather around like a flock and mock him together. He's an idiot. Why? Why do they have to do this? They know. He got them. And so now they're... Listen, if Jesus loves you, he will push on your idle pain point. He will push it. He will allow you to fail and be disappointed and break. And you'll think, ah, I have nothing. I'm nobody. I, what do I, I'm, he's pushing on your pain point because he loves you. And he wants to set you free from idolatry. And so you have two choices when he kicks it, when he elbows into your pain point. Number one. You could abandon the idol. Wouldn't it be great if the Pharisees had said, you're right. I am a total slave to money. And what people think, have mercy on me, save me. That would have been beautiful. You can either abandon your idol, but this is what they do instead, or you can protect your idol. They're protecting their idol. They're preserving it. It's like the little shaky chihuahua in the purse at the lady at the mall. <laughs> you got to protect it. You got to keep it close. You got to feed it. You got to keep this idol. Jesus is intervening, and he's showing us how we protect our idols. Because if, if you don't have Jesus to land on, and you let go of that idol, you'll feel like you have nothing. It's over. It's gone. It's despair. We protect our idols. He also intervenes in showing us how we justify our idolatry. Oh, man. Are you ready? This is going to be painful. You get kicked around. I get kicked around right here. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Wow. Okay. What does it mean to justify yourself? Well, to justify yourself is to try to prove to yourself that you have these heart needs. I am significant. How do I know? I got great kids. I'm justifying myself. I am significant. 
How do I know? Well, I keep getting promotions. Look how much power I have at work. I am significant. I have meaning, purpose, value. Why? Because look at all the money I have. I am significant. I have meaning, purpose, and value because look what these people think about me. I have it. You're justifying yourself. Justifying yourself. And Jesus says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. It's what human beings are always doing. How did the Pharisees do it? Well, they had laws about laws about the laws, right? And so they do the ceremonial washings. And what do their other uh, religious friends do while they do the ceremonial washings? I'm doing it too. We're right with God, right? Oh, and we, don't, we won't walk a certain amount of steps on the Sabbath. Me neither. Because we're right with God. They're justifying themselves. And then when Jesus won't play their tradition game, what's their response? Murder him. Why? Idle pain point. If we don't have this, we don't have the sense of being right or valuable or accepted. I'm not, I've lost my self-justification. Jesus says, man, if you are justifying yourselves before men, you are so lost in your idolatry. Pharisees did it with traditions and formalities. The religions of the world, every religion of the world that does not look to Jesus does this. Hey, you're right with God if you keep these five steps. If you read the special book, if you don't drink this, if you do that, oh, are you doing it too? I'm doing it. We justify ourselves before men. We do it too. We look to the pop culture views of what's right. We have excuses to vindicate ourselves. Don't, doesn't your heart find, is, aren't you trying to justify yourself all the time? Does anybody else in here struggle with that? You want to know a really weird version of idolatry? I'll be a little vulnerable today. Trying to be valuable or significant because of my apparent success as a pastor. If I find my identity or my value or my meaning in my apparent success as a pastor, I'll be lost. And I go to the conference, hey, how many people are in your church? Oh, how many people are in your church? Oh, what awesome things are you doing to change the world? Oh, well, how about you, Matt? <laughs> if that's who I am, I'm lost. That's my pain point. Jesus kicked that around many times. He still kicks it. I thought, I've figured it out, haven't I? <laughs> we try to justify ourselves. And then what if I go into, well, I'm a pretty good pastor. I did this right, and I did that right, and what about this, and what about that? Do you see? Oh, will you come and justify me? Tell me how about... I'm justifying myself before men. We do it, folks. We all do it. And the reality, terrifying words, right? Look at verse 15. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men... Next three words, read them with me. But God knows. He knows. He sees what you're really like. He sees your lack. He sees it. Let's quit playing. God knows. God knows. God knows your hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He's landing the plane hard, isn't he? What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. 
See, in this world, there are crowds and crowds of people who will tell you that your idolatry is awesome. Live for money. Awesome. You're a good person on your own. Awesome. Live for your kids. Awesome. Live for entertainment. Awesome. Live for sex and pleasure. Awesome. Live for, live for anything that's not Jesus. And you will find a crowd that says, awesome. And God says, abomination. It's disgusting. Whoa, what does he mean? Listen, I want to tell you, idolatry is the ultimate offense to God. It's the ultimate offense. Why? Why? Well, think about it. Who is God? He's beautiful and true and good and eternal and sufficient and wise. All that stuff. Okay, And to look at God and then say, you know, I don't really think you're that satisfying. I'll take this instead. Or I don't think your word is that true. I'm going to trust someone else instead. Like me, I'm going to follow my heart on what's right and wrong. You, eternal God, go move out of the way. Do you see what's happening? So Identity and security, I don't need that for my creator. I'm going to go over here for that. And ultimately, we're telling God, you're not good, you're not beautiful, you're not satisfying, you're not worthy of trust, your wrath isn't scary, your word isn't true. We're telling him in our idolatry, you're a crappy God. It's personal. Do you see that? That's what I've done in my heart. It's detestable to God. Moreover, it's detestable because as we are practicing our idolatry, we are breaking his law. You're going to serve your source that meets your, your heart needs. You're going to serve it. You're going to follow it. You're going to want it. And so when we're not worshiping the true God, we're not going to follow his commands. Look at what he says in verses 16 to 17. 16 is kind of tough because it's like the whole Bible in one sentence. Okay? The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached. Everyone forces his way into it. What? Okay, law and the prophets, that's what you and I call the Old Testament. Before Jesus, that's how you know and follow God, right? That's how you know and follow God. But they themselves are telling you, hey, we by ourselves, we're not enough. We need Jesus. That's what they're telling you, okay? Now, John, who was John? We call him John the Baptist. He was actually a Presbyterian. Some of you get that, okay? Denominational nerds, you guys, okay? John the Baptist was the prophet, and he said, Jesus is here. Transition, right? John is the transition from the law and the prophets to this new thing. Hey, Jesus is here. All these promises, they're coming true in Jesus, and that's the good news of the kingdom of God. The king is here, and he fulfills all that. I now, Jesus is saying, am the way to know and be right with God. I'm the one. I'm the fulfillment. But look at the first word of verse 17. What's the first word of verse 17? But. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. He's saying, don't think because I fulfill the law that you no longer need to keep the commands of the law. Don't think that it's not important anymore. And then he says a massive statement. It's easier for what? Verse 17. Material creation to melt away, that is more likely, according to Jesus, than for one dot of the law to become void. A dot of the law is like, if you've ever looked at Hebrew, there's these little dashes 
on some of these words. And so not even one of those is going to be forgotten. It's kind of like not one dot of an I or one cross of a small T will be forgotten. Jesus is saying the law is an expression of God's character and it is as eternal as God's character. So I'm not demeaning the law, he says. I'm upholding it. I'm fulfilling it. He talks about this a lot. You might have a question. You're like, well, wait, you can't eat shrimp in the Old Testament. I eat shrimp all the time now. Yeah, Jesus fulfilled that. We are marked as, as God's people, not through dietary laws, but through faith in Christ. So I'm not saying there's no change between Old Covenant and New Covenant. There's a lot of change, but none of it is wasted or void or empty. It is all either still in effect or fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The big question for this is, why does he bring this up? Right? You have to ask yourselves a question like this. Why does he bring this up in this conversation with the Pharisees? Okay, so what are the Pharisees? We've covered this. Idolaters. And yet, what do they think and say they're always keeping? The law. And in fact, they accuse Jesus of saying, they, they say to him sometimes, well, you don't keep the law because he won't follow their traditions about the Sabbath. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. I love the law. That's my law. That's eternal as God's character. But he brings this up to them as evidence for them in his intervention that they are idolaters. You don't keep the law. Why is this important? Hey guys, what's the major proof that somebody's a Christian? The major proof. I mean, God knows your heart. I don't know your heart, ultimately. He knows. But what's the major proof? Look at 1 John 5.3. How do you know you love God? 1 John 5.3. This is the love of God that we what? You keep his commandments. And his commandments are not what? Burdensome. So that means your, your, your attitude towards Jesus isn't like, oh, if I have to. Right? It's like, no, I love you. I found myself in you. I, I want to love what you love. I want to do what you want me to do, right? I want to keep your commandments, which means Jesus is not really interested in, I love you so much, and to heck with your commandments. What would he, what would he say about that love? I know you love something. It ain't me. You love your idol. That's why... Jesus drops his bomb in verse 18. This is Jesus' intervention to Pharisees who are idolatrous. That even though they're justifying themselves and keeping all these little rules, they don't really love God because they make a mockery of his law. And this is his illustration for the time. Verse 18, you ready? It's painful. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries... And, commits, and marries another, commits adultery. And he who marries a woman, divorced from her husband, commits adultery. What does the law say about marriage? What's God's word say about marriage? I'm going to lean on Matthew 19 here because Jesus goes into more detail. Jesus goes into more detail. Look at Matthew 19, verse 3. It's nearly the same conversation. And here Matthew records... And Pharisees came up to Jesus, right, and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to, to divorce one's wife, very important, for what? 
any cause, which means like, can I get divorced if I feel like it? Look at Jesus' answer, verse 4. He answered, what's the next few words? Have you not read? Come on, paraphrase. This means (laughs) you already know the answer. Because I know and you know you've read it in the law. It's in Genesis. I know you've read this. And what does the law say? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Verse 5, and said, therefore a man shall what? Leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become what? One flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore, what? God has joined together. Let not man separate. Jesus is telling the Pharisees who claim to love God, you know what the law says about marriage. Uh, Just to review, have you not read, right? This is what the law says. Uh, Number two, a, a man and a woman get together and get married. You know, that part about leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife, we live in a, a, a modern, Western, individualistic kind of culture, and so leaving your father and mother doesn't sound that, that big of a deal. Of course, you live for yourself. You're, but, you know, when you teach this, when I teach this in India, for instance, jaw drops. Because in a more communal and traditional culture, the person you want to please is your father and mother. And so the idea, especially there where women are still treated like trash in many cases, the idea that a man would leave his father and mother and their authority and that his major priority and purpose now would be his wife, that she becomes the ultimate human relationship to him, that is countercultural to them in a massive way. But that's God's design. She If you're a man, he, if you're a wife, become the number one human relationship. And it's one for life. They become one flesh emotionally, practically, physically, until death. And who did it, guys, according to Jesus? Every marriage, who made you one? God made you one. God did it. And therefore, Jesus' summary is, let not man separate what who? God has joined together. Now, I know there's a lot of questions here. Um, Context and background is really important. Number one, I do want to say there are biblical grounds for divorce in the New Testament. And by biblical grounds, I mean God accepts certain kinds of divorce as valid. So if you read 1 Corinthians 7, there's some about... um, abandonment. For instance, in that case, the principle is uh, one person becomes a Christian, her husband says, I don't want to be married to you anymore, and I'm not going to be married to you anymore because you're a Christian, I'm out. Paul says to that person, it's okay, there's nothing you can do. And so biblical theologians have said, hey, there's at least like three uh, biblical grounds. Repeated sexual immorality is one of them. You know, an example, they keep sleeping around and won't stop. Okay, or abandonment is another one. They're they're just leaving. You can't do anything about it. Another one would be a continued abuse, an unrepentant abuse. 
Okay, So I want to say there are biblical grounds for divorce. And what I mean by biblical grounds is God would say, yes, that's valid. It's always a tragedy, but yes, that's valid. In this case, there's plenty of evidence for it. Like you see in the Pharisee's question, can I get divorced for any cause? Okay, And this is what many of the Pharisees were doing, historians will tell you. They would get divorced for almost no reason. And in that society, you don't live as a single person. And so what happens? Well, I'm going I'm to divorce my wife. She burnt the breakfast. Literally, that's an illustration of what would occur. And then, well, she can't stay single, so she's going to marry Joe now. And then, and then all these, we're like, hey, I feel like getting divorced. And it's okay. It's lawful as long as I do the certificate. As long as I do the certificate. And now you have, like, wife swapping. And they're like, oh, we love God and we're keeping his law. Do you see how God is is angry. Do you see how it's an abomination? It's a desecration. They're claiming to love God and his law while totally undoing it. And Jesus is using this as an illustration for them as he intervenes in the reality that you're an idolater. So let me sum it all up. What's one evidence you're an idolater? It's when you don't love to obey. It's when you don't love to obey. So let me back way up here, way beyond divorce, okay? How many of you are like me? You're idolaters, okay? I'm a recovering idolater. And so Jesus is intervening and saying, hey, look, look at this idol you have to protect. If anybody hits the pain point, you're fighting, you're raging. Maybe some of you feel like that right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm pushing you around a little bit. Uh, you have this pain point, you're rejecting it, and then you, you have to justify yourself constantly, Right? You have to have people say, oh, it's okay, it's good, and uh, a religious reason, a cultural reason. But Jesus says, hey, just look at the reality. God knows, and he knows when you rebel against his law. So now there's the antidote. Are you ready for an antidote? I'm ready for an antidote. I'm ready for good news. Good news of the kingdom of God is now preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Here's the good news. Jesus is saying, you need a violent encounter with the gospel. You need a violent encounter with the gospel. Let me unpack that. Number one, gospel. What's gospel mean? It's good news. It's good news. So we have all these heart needs, and we're trying to justify ourselves and find significance and satisfaction and hope and meaning and purpose, and we can't do it, and we don't keep the law, and we're broken, and then we look at Jesus. Perfect life. Jesus, if you ponder this, Jesus is amazing for this one fact among many, many others. He was never once an idolater. He always loved his father. And he says in one place, I always do what my father says so everybody will know I love my father. Do you see the love and the law there? I obey my father because I love my father. He never once was an idolater. Majestic. And then think about the cross. What does the law say that lawless idolaters deserve? Curse, wrath, death. We've insulted God. We've hated him. We've demeaned him. And there on the cross, what is Jesus taking for me and for you? The judgment we deserve for demeaning God and putting others in his place and desecrating his law, Jesus Paid for it in our place. All the condemnation, all the punishment, all the desecration. 
And then there's this one phrase in Romans 4, I love it so much. There Paul says, he was raised for our justification. Ponder that with me. Do you remember justification? What are you longing for? What's your heart looking for? I'm okay. I'm valuable. I'm significant. I'm loved. I have meaning, worth, purpose. I'm on the right track. I know what I'm living for. I have a secure future. Will somebody justify me? We look to this, and we look to this, and we look to this, and we look to here, and we can't do it. And then Paul says, he was raised for your justification. Which means, as Jesus rose from the dead, literally, physically, God was vindicating the life that he had lived and what he had done on the cross and said, perfect, good enough, all you need. And then if you will trust yourself to Jesus... If you say, I need you, I trust you, save me. That means God himself is saying about you, perfect, enough, loved, accepted, valuable. And you want to say, wait, even me, the one who's denied him and broke his law over and over again, he'll love and forgive and accept and validate me? And what's the answer to the gospel? Yes. Yes. It's a strange line Jesus gives. Everyone is forcing his way into the kingdom. I'll give you my interpretation of what that, I think that means. Jesus says everyone is coming to him. And by everyone, I think he means all kinds of people. You read through Luke, and even though the Pharisees don't like him, who love him? Prostitutes? Tax collectors? The outsiders of society? Beggars? People with nothing, Roman centurions, they're coming. Everyone's coming because they've been looking at their world and the things they look to to justify them and saying, it's not worth it. And they say, Jesus saying, I'll be everything for you. And they're like, I'll have more of that, please. And they come, everyone comes, and they're coming forcefully. This word can either mean the kingdom is hitting them forcefully or they're coming and grabbing onto the kingdom forcefully. And I think it means both. They're coming and grabbing on and This was the Pharisees' problem, right? They're like, those people can't come. They're not good enough. Jesus says, oh, everybody's coming. I'm here for everybody. And they're coming and needing a violent encounter. What do you think about that? Do you think you need a violent encounter with the gospel? I don't mean physical violence. Okay? Not at all. But I think you need a violent realization Number one, a violent realization. What are we always doing for ourselves? Justifying ourselves? I'm enough. I'm good enough. I did this. I went to, went to there. They said this about me. You know what the violent realization says? I'm not enough. I wrecked it. I messed it up. I'm a sinner. I deserve judgment. It's over. What do I have? Violent realization. It hurts to get to that point, doesn't it? Humility before God. I have nothing to make any trades with you with. I just need your mercy. Folks, that's the kind of person Jesus saves every time. A violent realization. Second, a violent trust. Clinging to a new idol. The true idol. Jesus. Clinging to him. For identity, for meaning, for purpose, for truth, for security. Jesus, you are my forgiveness. You are my vindication. You are my satisfaction. You are my hope. And that leads to a violent repentance. 
When you give your life to Jesus and you're amazed by his love, what do you want to do now with your life? You want to please him, which means what are you going to try to do? Obey him. You're going to want to obey him. And here's the beautiful thing you'll find as this happens to you. No idol will ever love you like Jesus. No idol will ever love you like Jesus. You got to look at the cross like every 15 seconds. What do you see at the cross? I'm not enough, man. He had to die for me. What else do you see? I'm so loved. And you see a resurrection that says, I'm justified. I am right with God through Jesus Christ. I'm okay. I'm significant. I'm valuable. I'm at the right place. He's got me. I'm his. He's my future. I found it. I found my home. I found my place. Nobody will ever love you like Jesus. I love this quote. Let me share it with you from this lady named Christina Edmondson. This is what Christina says. Here's the difference between God and an idol. You defend your idols. God in Christ defends you. He defends you. Can you hear his voice? You who trust in Jesus, I've not enough. I love you. I've messed it up too many times. I forgive you. I haven't done it right. Yeah, but I see your heart. I see you're, you're trying for me. I love it. I'm your father. I'm worried about the future. I got you. You're an heir of my inheritance. Do you hear what he says? We have to defend our idols, guys, the pain point. Remember, the true God in Christ, he defends you. He defends you. Wow. So like I said, my name is Matt, and I'm a recovering idolater. And I hope, yeah, thanks. And I hope all of you will join me. And I've had a violent encounter with the gospel, and I'm still having it. And there finally, I'm finding peace. Finally, I'm finding peace. Let Jesus intervene in your idolatry. And then drop them all and cling to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your painful intervention. I pray, Lord, that your spirit will be doing way more than I can do with my weak words. Lord, help us to see where we go for these things our hearts need. Help us to recognize our idols and help us abandon them as idols. Put them in their proper place and find our hearts in you and in you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.